morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to be here at our 11 o'clock worship service, and it's always good to be in the house of the Lord. When I'm asked about what is my favorite hobby in life, it's a simple question. I reply, eating. It's the only hobby that I get to do more than three times a day without feeling guilty, and no one says anything because they do the very same thing. When I'm asked what is my second favorite hobby, I tell them it's traveling to other countries. They ask me why. I tell them it's because I get to eat the foods from the other countries. If I enjoy something especially delicious or unique or interesting, as you know, I like to share it with all of you, those who are uh, connected with me through social media. My wife complains that I have more pictures of food in my photo albums than I do of my own children. I tell her good foods are my babies. As I've mentioned to a few, if I wasn't a pastor, I would probably be a food critic or a blogger. I have had the privilege and the opportunity to eat some very exotic and uh, uh, tasty foods, one of which is haggis. I don't know if you know what haggis is. Haggis is one of those delicacies you can find in Scotland. Uh, let me describe it for you to whet your appetite. Uh, it's a pudding containing sheep's heart, liver, and lungs, all minced with onions, oatmeal, and shall we say other mystery meats. Uh, you add a, a light touch of salt, and that mixture is encased in the animal's stomach. I don't know if I've just made you nauseated or hungry, uh, but yum when I think about it. When you try something that you like or you find delicious, I know you want to share it with others. You do it all the time. But so it is with things that are also not food-related. Perhaps you have discovered the latest herbal medicine that will cure every known disease known to men, uh, and you want to share it with others. Perhaps you uh, have begun to take the latest vitamin supplements, which has helped you, or you've discovered a new exercise regimen. Perhaps a new veggie drink that supposedly cures you uh, and allows you to lose weight 10 pounds a week. If you do find that veggie drink, please do let me know. Uh, some of you are excited about a new movie you've seen or perhaps a fascinating book that you've read. When you are excited about something or something has blessed you, you almost feel compelled to share it with others. But let me ask you this. What about that day when Jesus Christ came and saved you from the fiery pits of hell to give you a purpose in life, to give you a life of joy and of hope, eternal life? Have you bothered to tell anyone about this first amazing encounter with Jesus Christ? Many of you would say the day you met Christ, the day you accepted him was the day that you made the most important decision of your life. Why is it the reality for most people and this most important decision of your life? Do you clam up about it? Do you find the need not to share it with others? You have no desire to let your various spheres of influence or community know about this most important decision of your life. And the question I pose to you this morning is, why not? This morning we continue our series entitled, First Encounter. We've been looking at various characteristics that should be evident in our life 
when we have had a true encounter with Jesus Christ. Things that we should be doing as a result of that life-transforming experience. Last week, we talked about the characteristic of adoration. This week, we talk about the characteristic of evangelism. Let me state first and foremost that a true encounter with Jesus Christ should radically transform our lives into a burning desire to evangelize and tell people about Jesus Christ. That encounter with Jesus Christ should so radically change us that we can't help but to have a burning desire to tell everyone we know about the day we met Jesus Christ. This past week, I had the privilege of speaking at the high school chapel, and I shared with them from the book of Ephesians. I told them that uh, Ephesians is what we call a prison epistle. Uh, Paul was uh, in prison, uh, probably chained to a Roman guard 24 hours, seven days a week. And I posed this question to the young people. Who do you feel sorry for? Do you feel sorry for Paul? Or do you feel sorry for the guard chained to Paul? Most of you would feel sorry for Paul. Uh, Poor Paul having to be imprisoned for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing what I know about Paul through his epistles in the book of Acts, I told them I would feel sorry for the guards. Paul was an evangelist in his, to his core. I can just imagine him with glee whenever there would be a new guard who would be chained to him. I can just imagine the anticipation and the excitement When every 68 hours, perhaps, some new Roman guard would be shackled next to him. I can just imagine with Paul with a wide grin, look over to the guard and say to him, How you doing? And as he smiled, he would ask this guard, perhaps, Do you know Jesus? The soldier most probably would not care. I don't know Jesus, and I don't care to know him. The evangelist Paul would say, well, you know what? Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you how I met him on the way to Damascus. Let me share with you how he changed my life. The captured audience was not Paul. The captured audience were the prison guards. I don't know how many prison guards are in heaven today because they had the privilege of being shackled to Paul. How do we find that same zeal and passion that the great evangelist Paul had and the evangelist of ages passed? Where do we get the passion to tell people about the start of our own faith journey that day we met Jesus Christ? Let's discover this passion together. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. As we take a look at John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. If you're new to the Bible, uh, the Gospel of John is found in the New Testament, towards the last third of your Bible. It follows Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then we get to John. John chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at the life of a disciple named Andrew, Andrew. 
John chapter 1, verse 35 to 38 reads this. Again, the next day, John the Baptist stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following him, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? The forerunner to the Savior, John the Baptist, is with two of his followers. When by chance they happen to run into Jesus, and John the Baptist points to Jesus and he says, The Lamb of God. And there two of his disciples went to listen to the Lamb of God. Challenged, convicted, they began to follow him. Shall we say they began to stalk Jesus? They couldn't get enough of him. Jesus following him, uh, following, sensing them following him, turned around and asked them, what are you looking for? And they asked Jesus, where are you going? Look at the reply of Jesus in verse 39. And Jesus said to them, and I love this, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. Jesus invites them to come and see. He invites them to be in fellowship with him. He invites them to hear what he has to say, to commune with him, to experience him more than simply listening to the message he's been speaking. Oh, to be a fly on the wall, to listen in on that conversation, that experience that night between Jesus and these two Jesus invites them to experience what it means to be in fellowship with him. Let me just stop here and say that, you know, many people know from an intellectual level who Jesus is. You know about his background. You can list for me 10 miracles that he's done. You know that he died and was resurrected on the third day. But there are very few people, perhaps, who have personally experienced Jesus in a real way. They know about Jesus, but they don't know him. But here is an invitation from Jesus. Come and see. Experience what I have to offer. Listen in at the proposition that I propose to you. You are under no compilation to buy or even to buy in. But just experience what it means to be in fellowship with me. A few weeks ago, I was in California, and in each region, there's always uh, a demographic that you can uh, surmise from those who are there. This was a very academically intellectual crowd, a, churches, a church with a lot of PhDs in their congregation. And so I spoke at their conference, and after the weekend conference, one of them came up to me and said, you know, Pastor thought I was going to receive a compliment, and he said to me, Pastor, I just want to let you know that your message this weekend wasn't anything new. I braced myself for the criticism. He continued, I didn't really learn anything intellectually new. All the passages that you've used, I've, I've read before myself. I, I've heard them before. My heart began to pound a bit in anger, trying to defend myself. But this is the Word of God, I wanted to say. 
But then he continued, but you know, Pastor, even though I've heard these passages before and have read them myself, something happened this weekend. Somehow, your message spoke to my heart. It didn't speak to my head. It spoke to my heart. And I said, praise God. That's the moving of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because now you're no longer just reading about Jesus. You're coming to experience him firsthand. And you're in for an amazing ride. It's not about the intellectual knowledge of knowing Jesus. Some of the greatest biblical scholars of our time don't even believe in Jesus. Some of the greatest biblical archaeologists do not believe in the historicity of the scriptures. But then the invitation comes from Jesus. Come and see What does that experience look like? It must have been pretty amazing, that experience, because you accepted him and you followed him. You've now become sold out for Jesus. Even secular marketers understand that you must have bought into the product before you can quote-unquote sell it. Whether marketers in general or multi-level marketers... Salespeople, they require that you use that product first. That you continue to use that product. Because unless you experience the change of that product in your life yourself, then you will not be able to deliver or sell the product with passion. I used to have a very bad habit when I go to a restaurant and I am looking at the menu to see what I want to order. I'll call over the waiter and I'll ask him or her, is this particular dish good? Somehow their answer is always, yes, sir, it's excellent. My wife always tells me that's the dumbest question I ask. She tells me there is no one that's going to tell you, you know what, sir, that's the grossest thing on the menu. You shouldn't order from that. You shouldn't order that dish. And that's true. So now I have a follow-up question to them. I ask the waiter, you say it's good, Have you personally tried it? That often stumps them. But before you can give a recommendation, you should have tried it out yourself. And so it is with evangelism. We've heard countless sermons on this topic, the need and the impetus to do so from the Great Commission. But have we forgotten that the passion stems out of our amazing experience That we have come and seen the Savior. Have we forgotten that the excitement, the challenge, the impetus comes when we have personally experienced that life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ? You see, at its very core, evangelism is an invitation from you to others for them to also come and see The very same Jesus you came to experience. Evangelism is for you to share the good news of salvation to the invitation for them to come and see for themselves. My friends, you do not need to sell Jesus to others. The message of the cross is compelling enough that you simply need to invite them to come and see.
If evangelism is simply defined, at least for this sermon, the bringing of others to Jesus Christ with the good news, are you doing it? We all know we need to do it, but are you doing it? Let me spend the rest of this sermon by sharing with you three things that I see that results from evangelism that may spur you on to do it. And I want to use the life of Andrew. The three times he is mentioned in the Gospels. Look at verse 40. We find the identity of one of these two disciples. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Andrew is the first disciple of Jesus. How did his first encounter with Jesus transform his life? Look what happens in verse 41 and 42. Andrew first found his own brother, Simon, Peter, and said to him, Brother, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, Petra, which is translated a stone, the rock. In that life-changing experience, when Andrew took up the offer of Jesus to come and see and to experience and fellowship with him, Andrew could not wait to find his brother Peter to tell him, we have found the Messiah, the Savior. The Bible tells, him, tells us in verse 41, this is the first thing he does. Oh, if only all of the people of our church had this very same exuberance the first time they met Jesus. If evangelism is simply bringing people to meet Jesus through telling them about the good news you have received, then each one of us should be doing it immediately after the first time we met Christ. But some of us are still being trained 20 years later. I'm not saying we shouldn't be trained in evangelism. We are to be trained to be more effective we can anticipate the questions of those who doubt. But you have no excuse not to go and share the life-changing work of Christ in your life right after it has happened. That passion should be there. Because if you don't, soon after you will forget. You will become scared. And for many of us, we simply have not done it in our lives. Don't worry if there's a question that will stump you. You can simply say to that person, you know, I don't know that answer, but I'll certainly find out. Or you know what? I know someone who knows how to answer that question you have. Let's set up an appointment with a, a pastor, an elder, or a deacon of the church I attend. Let no excuses be a hindrance to the passion of you sharing that experience you had with Jesus. After Andrew brings Peter to Jesus, notice the commendation of Peter by Jesus. You will be the rock. We all know how Peter turns out. He becomes the spokesman of the twelve. Becomes one of the leader of the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. In fact, so famous Peter becomes that when the gospel writer John has to tell us who Andrew is, look back at verse 40. How does John write it? He says, Andrew the brother of Peter. 
I don't know if you've had a famous father or a famous brother. You like to be introduced as the son of someone or the brother of. Son of someone should be okay, but the brother of. And in every time, that most times that Andrew is introduced, he's introduced as the brother of Peter. I wonder when we get to heaven and we're looking for Andrew, it will be said, oh, you mean Peter's brother? I don't think Andrew really cares. Because I think Andrew sees something that we often forget. And here's the first result of your taking notes, number one. What does evangelism result in? Extrapolated from this passage, this principle. Evangelism results in another disciple of Christ. Nothing earth-shattering there. The simple truth that evangelism results in another disciple of Christ. The Bible tells us that when one comes to know Christ, all heaven rejoices. Do you get excited when there's a prospect of someone coming to know Christ? We've forgotten that the most obvious result of evangelism is that there is another one added to the ranks to whom it can be said of him or her, they are a follower of Christ. We've made evangelism so complex. The joy sucked out of it, worrying about questions that oftentimes never come up, that we forget that one of the greatest joys of evangelism is that someone becomes a follower, a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. The key to church growth is simply a church that does evangelism. It is a mandate by all those who are called to be followers of Christ in the Great Commission. I know there are a lot of strategies and gimmicks as it relates to church growth. But the easiest one, and the biblical one, is simply to evangelize. To share with others about that life-changing transformation that day you met Christ. Inviting them to come and see what you have seen as well. You see, if Andrew didn't see the need to bring Peter, then perhaps we wouldn't have a Peter to even talk about in the Bible. Are you challenged to simply bring someone to experience the same Christ you've experienced? On this three-month leave, as you know, I was on, uh, I spoke at some very large churches and some very small churches. I told the Lord a long time ago, it doesn't matter the size as long as the opportunity is there for me to share God's word. And if it fits into my schedule, then I would accept the invitation. In my travels uh, through Europe, I was invited by uh, a church in the Netherlands to speak there. Uh, The pastor was very apologetic when he invited me. He said, Pastor Steve, would you accept our invitation? But I must let you know that our church is very small. Uh, Especially when he found out about the size of our church, uh, he apologized even more. I said, no worries. Uh, my schedule enables me to do so, I will speak at your church. Uh, Before that week, he kept apologizing. Again, Pastor, we just want to let you know, our church is very small. The more he said it, the more I wondered, how small is your church? Uh, But you know what? Uh, Something happened in me the more he said it. My heart also began to change. And I'm only human. And the more he said how small it was, the more I said to myself, you know, I don't want to preach here if it's that small. 
But I'd made a commitment already, and so I kept it. It wasn't that small. It was about 100 people. Good-sized church in the Netherlands. After church, and I deliver a message as I do with passion, whether it's to 100 or 1,000, it doesn't matter. A young woman came up to me and asked for a few minutes of my time. And I said, sure, and I sat down with her, and uh, uh, she began to share with me about her life. Uh, I could tell from the eloquence of her language and how she dressed and uh, her background that she was a very successful woman. She had lived in Australia, worked in the U.S., and now had made her way to Europe. Uh, as I listened to her, she shared with me then how, how her life was so messed up that even though she had everything, a wonderful family, uh, a wonderful job, uh, living in a wonderful country, that she found no joy in her life. She was depressed. She needed encouragement. She had not come to church, but someone had invited her, and she compelled to come that morning. And she was touched by the passage I had used. And she just wanted to tell me that she would now no longer look from her own perspective and the depression and hopelessness in which she saw through her own lenses. But she wanted to live a life for Jesus Christ and to look through spiritual eyes. And that was it. I prayed, she cried, and we said goodbye. As I was on the train ride back, the question popped into my mind from the Lord, Stephen, was it worth it to go out here? It was an hour away from your hotel. I thought to myself, you know what, it was worth it. I thought to myself, here's a woman who's so capable. Slimmy could not see beyond her own hopelessness, but her eyes had been turned towards Jesus. And I wondered, and I said on that train ride back, if she could be the next Lottie Moon. If you don't know who Lottie Moon is, then you need to read up on her biography. I wondered if she would be the next Susanna Wesley, godly mother who would raise up a generation of uh, young men on fire for the Lord and brought revival to a country. I wondered if she would be the next Beth Moore or perhaps the next Kay Arthur. But I thought I'd probably never meet her again. But I wrote in my journal, I can't wait to hear her life story when I get to heaven. I became radically excited. Excited to see how God would use her. If you don't get excited about that, then you will never do the work of evangelism. Because the exciting part of evangelism is that you never know that the person you're bringing to Christ may turn out to be the next Billy Graham the next John Stott, the next John Sung. I hope that the excitement of thinking about that will challenge you to invite others to come and see the very same Savior that changed your life. How many people have been introduced to Jesus Christ because of you? You know, our church has the capacity to touch the lives of tens of thousands of people every week. 
But how many of them know Jesus Christ because of you? Have you invited them to come and see to the way you live your life? You know, the job of conviction is the Holy Spirit's. You don't have to worry whether you're going to ex- they're going to accept or not. Your responsibility and my responsibility is bringing them and inviting them and introducing them to this Jesus. Leave the work of conviction to the Holy Spirit. But you will be held responsible to what God calls you to do. How many of them know Christ through your actions? How many of them know Christ through your words? Are your words seasoned with love, grace, mercy? Is your attitude one of humility? Because parents, your children are watching you. Teachers, your students are watching you. Businessmen, your colleagues are watching you. And they will know and come to know Christ by the way that you live. Through your actions, through your words, through your attitude. How many of them will be attracted to Christ in the way you live? I love the story of Gordon Maxwell, the missionary to India. One of my favorite stories, I told the story a few years ago, but I repeat it again. He went to India and he wanted to learn the language. And so he asked a Hindu scholar, one of the preeminent teachers of language at that time, to teach him the language. The Hindu replied, No, Shahib, no, Mr. Maxwell, I will not teach you my language. You would make me a Christian. Maxwell said to him, No, sir, I will not convert you. I will not proselyte. I just want you to teach me the language. I hear you are the best. I'm simply asking you to teach me the language. Again, the Hindu scholar replied, No, sir, I will not teach you. Gordon Maxwell said, Why? Why would you not teach me? I'll pay you. And the response of this scholar to Gordon Maxwell, he said, Sir, no man can live with you and not become a Christian. No man can live with you and not become a Christian. One of the highest compliments that can be said of someone. I wonder if that can be said of you and of me. That through the actions of our lives and through the words spoken, that the thousands of people, the tens of thousands we encounter as a church body every week, can some of them at least say of you, I cannot come in contact with you and not know about Jesus Christ. May that be the compliment that you seek for. The second time we see Andrew is in John chapter 6. Turn with me a few pages in your Bibles to John chapter 6. And here we come to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. The Synoptic Gospels tell us that the people had stayed late. They, They were far from home and they continued to follow Jesus to hear his transformational messages. There were so many of them, and Jesus felt compassion for them. John chapter five, uh, chapter 6, verse 5 to 7, we pick up here. 
John writes, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. Jesus, I don't think, is picking on Philip. He probably tested every one of his disciples, but in this moment he inquired of Philip, Hey, Philip, how do we get bread for all these people? I don't believe Philip was an accountant, but he could tell we don't have enough money to buy bread for everyone. It was then that Andrew shows up. Look at verse 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, there it is again, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? (laughs) Poor Andrew, always known as the brother of the more famous Peter. I wonder if Andrew ever thought to himself, Hey, John, don't you forget that I brought Peter to Christ. Regardless, here we see Andrew again bringing someone to Christ, and this time a little boy with five loaves and two fish. I know you've read this passage, and so have I many a times. You know, I often wonder how in the world did Andrew get this little boy to share his food? I have two hungry growing boys. They do not share their food like their father. I wonder if the first miracle is not the feeding of the 5,000, but the first miracle was the prying of food from this hungry little boy's hands. But, you know, there must have been a gentleness to Andrew. I don't want to read too much into the text. How he was able to bring a boy to offer his food to the Lord. Andrew wasn't sure how a small amount would feed so many. But look what happens when five loaves and two fish are placed in the hands of Jesus. Verse 10 and verse 11. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down. It's number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given things, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. You know the story, the bread and the fish were multiplied. You see, small things are multiplied when in the hands of God. Here's an indirect principle we can draw from this passage, the result of looking at the life of Andrew in this incident. And here is number two, the second result of evangelism defined as bringing people to Christ. Evangelism results in seeing God at work. Evangelism results in seeing God at work. When we bring people to Christ, we begin to see God at work. You see, evangelism is never about you. You cannot force someone to accept Christ. It doesn't matter how eloquent you are. It doesn't matter how convincing you are. You cannot force them to accept Christ and to experience Him as you've experienced Him. But it's never about you. It's about the work of God in their life. If you want to see God at work, and we all do, then bring people to Him. Introduce Jesus to them. And I know you've seen people whose lives have been transformed, and it's an amazing process. Invite them to come and see Jesus, and then 
bring up a proverbial lawn chair and just sit back and watch God at work. I know there are a lot of people in this world you don't like. Shall we say you hate them? You can't stand them. They drive you up the wall. And unfortunately, these people are people you can't get rid of because they're your parents or they're your teenage son or daughter or they're a business colleague. They're your spouse. You yell at them. You threaten them. Challenge them to change. But they don't. Let me let you on a little secret. You want them to change? You bring them to Christ. You talk about Christ. You tell them what he's doing in your life and you live it out. And then watch how God will work in their life. Because God can break even the hardest of hearts and he alone can change them. You want to see God at work? Evangelize. I don't know if you have this show. It's called Extreme Makeover. Uh, it's one of my guilty pleasures. You know, they transform, a, shall we say, an ugly person into someone of great beauty. They transform an ugly house into a, a mansion. And we always stay till the end because we want to see the transformation, the oohs and the ahs that come with it. But you don't see the ugly side of what happens. You see, some of these people, when they get a large home, they go into debt because they cannot keep up now with their mansion of a house. Many of these who are transformed fall into depression because although their outward appearance has been changed, their inward heart has never been moved. If you want to see an extreme makeover in the truest sense from the inside out, look no further than yourself. If God can take a hold of your life and so radically change it, would you not want to show the world about the extreme makeover you've undergone? One that began that day you met Jesus. The final time we see Andrew is in John chapter 12. Turn to me a few pages in your Bibles to John chapter 12. Here is the last recorded incident of Andrew in the Gospels. Verse 20. Now there were certain Jews among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee and asked him saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Some Greek Gentiles had been seeking the truth as evidenced in verse 20 by them worshiping at a Jewish festival. They wanted to see Jesus. They had heard about this great teacher, this great rabbi. Why they came to Philip, I don't know. I can only venture to guess because they were Greek, perhaps. Philip was a Greek name. They thought he was Greek and they approached him. But for reasons not written in the text, we have no idea why Philip didn't just bring them to Jesus. He has to turn to Andrew. And Andrew, along with Philip, brings him to Jesus. Regardless of the reasoning of Philip, what we see here is that Andrew is again bringing people to Jesus. I love the response of Jesus. So interesting. 
Verse 23 and 26. Then Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for all eternal, for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am there, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. Basically, Jesus' response goes something like this. Welcome, I'm going to die. Maybe the welcome wasn't even there. Now, I don't know if he's speaking to the disciples or to the Greeks who would gather there, perhaps to both. But Jesus gives them a challenge, and we don't have time to exposit these verses. But what we see here is a call for self-denial. You must die to yourself so that you can live an eternal life. Jesus challenges us have an eternal perspective. And here from these passages, we can draw out an indirect principle. The third result of evangelism from the life of Andrew is that evangelism gives us an eternal perspective. When one brings someone else to Christ, not only is that person transformed, but you yourself are transformed in your mind to have an eternal perspective. The more you evangelize and and tell others about the good news, the more you gain a spiritual perspective. Because by the very nature of evangelism, telling others about the hopelessness of this world and the hopefulness of Christ changes our own perspective. We also need the reminder always. It's a lesson for us. The perspective of bringing someone to Christ shows us that we are part of something greater, something bigger, something more wonderful. I can assure you that people who have lost sight of the eternal perspective are those people who do not evangelize. They get bogged down in the quagmire of this world. But bringing people to Christ reminds us of how we are to live. We are reminded that we are strangers and pilgrims in this land, that we are here for a purpose. We are here for a calling And the church has forgotten that, sometimes even our church. The late Sam Shoemaker, an Episcopalian bishop, summed up this situation well. He writes, in the Great Commission, the Lord has called us to be fishers of men. But we've turned the commission around so that we become merely keepers of the aquarium. Occasionally, I take some fish out of your fishbowl and put them into my aquarium. And you do the same. You take some fish from my aquarium and put them in yours. But we're not fishers of men. We're simply tending the same fish. That's why it's been the internal metrics of this church that as our church continues to grow, the 75% of our growth and more has to come from new believers or the unchurched. Or else we're simply moving fish around from one aquarium to another go and become fishers of men invite others to see the very same Jesus that you've experienced 
that will give you the perspective that you need to have. Three times Andrew is mentioned in the Bible, and every time he's bringing someone to Christ. So overwhelmed was his first encounter with Jesus when Jesus said to him, Andrew, come and see. That perhaps can I say that it has become the motto of Andrew's life come and see. As he was invited to come and see, so it became his life's call to tell others to also come and see this Jesus he met. Tradition tells us that Andrew died by crucifixion like his brother. Andrew died uh, traditionally on a sideways cross. And that's why you see a cross sideways. It's called St. Andrew's Cross. Uh, You can see this on the national flag of Scotland. But tradition tells us that while he is on this cross, he is proclaiming and inviting people to come and see Christ until his final breath. From the first invitation of Christ to him to come and see, it has become the rally cry and the pleading of Andrew for the rest of his life until his dying breath. Won't you come and see Come and see this Jesus I've met. Can that be your rallying cry? When God gifted us with a firstborn, we were thinking about names for him. But we chose to name our son Andrew. Why Andrew? Because it was our desire as his parents, Lord willing and through prayer, that little Andrew would spend the rest of his life, whatever his vocation, to bring people to Christ. That's our deep, intense desire, that he will grow up in whatever vocation God calls him to be a part of, to spend all of his life bringing people to Christ, inviting them to come and see. You don't have to be named Andrew to do this are you inviting others to come and see this Jesus who has who you claim has changed your life would you make it a goal this week to share your story of how you met Christ to invite at least one person to come and see this Jesus who has transformed your life and can transform their life You really have no excuse. This is not only a mandate, and you are not a hermit, unless you immediately go straight home after the service, don't meet anyone, and then come out again next Sunday morning. You will encounter hundreds of people put together our church. We will encounter tens of thousands of people. Would you commit to at least telling one in your spheres of influence or in the community about that day you met Jesus Christ. If you can share about your favorite food, if you can share about your fun vacation, if you can share about your child's achievements, if you can 
complain about the traffic on EDSA or the long lines on the MRT, could you not share with passion about the Jesus Christ who changed your life? The excitement for me is that if everyone in this church and all four service takes up the challenge, this will be the greatest evangelistic week that this church has ever known. May it be so. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Lord, this morning. Challenge even unto my own heart. With the same passion that I share food, may I share Jesus Christ even more. And whatever the passions of the hearts of the people this morning, may we with the same urgency leave from this place desiring to share our walk with Christ and to invite others to come and see. With bated breath, we can't wait for another disciple to join the ranks to be called the follower of Jesus. Can't wait to sit back and see God work. Can't wait to see how our own perspective is changed and blessed. Be with this church, Lord. Help it to be a pinnacle, a lighthouse. For the community to know about Jesus. Pray blessings upon every person here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.